Folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with writer, director, podcaster, and comedian, Scott Ackerman. Scott has been very busy lately. He's perhaps best known for his hit podcast, Comedy Bang Bang, which has been introducing audience to the most talented comedians and improv artists for the last 10 years. And that's just Scott's side gig. He's written for movies and television shows, like Mr. Show, and more recently, Between Two Ferns, a wonderfully awkward talk show hosted by Zach Galifianakis, which is now a full-length Netflix movie. Even with all of his success, Scott still marvels at the fact that he gets to be silly and make other people laugh for a living. He wonders, at what point will people realize it's all a scam? Scott grew up a comedy fan who, like me, had an affinity for David Letterman. In fact, in high school, he hosted a Letterman-inspired news show on his town's public access channel. And in college, he frequently turned serious academic assignments into sketches, including a memorable ballet performance which got him into trouble with his teachers. As Scott tells it, I heard my whole life that I didn't take things seriously enough, and I finally realized I should go into comedy. Scott joins off-camera to talk about Bob Odenkirk's role in jump-starting his career, how on the Between Two Ferns film, he was almost too afraid to talk to, let alone direct David Letterman, and why his parents don't like anything he does. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sam. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me this. on. Oh, we said thank you at the same time. <laughs> That's what we do, because we have so much in We're common. We're so appreciative. Yes. Yeah, and we do have a lot in common. We're very uh, thankful people, but I found out before the show that we used to live very near each other. Very near each other. I grew up in Orange County, as did you, which is funny because I got out of Orange County as quickly as I could and came up to L.A., and for a long time, I think when people ask me where I'm from, I just say LA because most people don't know yeah. Fullerton or Orange County. I say around here. Around here, yeah. yeah I'm from around but here. But there's a little bit of shame associated with it. Yeah, which if people are not from California, they're like, oh, cool. They don't really know. You say over by Disneyland, they go, oh, wow, that's great. And but, that is LA. But people from California, they're yes. like, oh, Orange <laughs> County, okay. We thought you were uh, cool yeah. until you said that. You know, what's funny is when you meet someone that says, I grew up in LA, and you say where, and they say the valley, and then you say Orange County, and like, oh, now we're on equal. Yeah, we're sort of, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the valley is maybe 10% cooler than Orange County. I think so. I don't know. I think the valley has the same shame. Yeah, it does have a shame, definitely. But at least it's physically, the proximity is is a little bit closer. Yes. Although I will say, if you live in Canoga Park and you want to get to Dodger Stadium, or you live where we grew up and you want to get to Dodger Stadium, it's the same time. Same, yeah, same yeah. time, yeah. This I, is what we do on this show. We just talk about Just talk about the very local street references. Yes. Ball Road. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about the way it feels now for you to be doing everything you do because you have this podcast, Comedy Bang Bang. It's on every week for the last 10 years. And you get to go in a room for two hours a week and be silly and be surrounded by the greatest comic talent. And just from a therapy standpoint, laughing hilariously for a couple hours is an incredible thing to be able to do. I mean, do you ever think of it outside of the job as just the benefits of like being able to be silly and laugh? Yeah, I do. It's, it, to me, that's what kind of keeps me going for the 10 years is that, you know, uh, 
no matter what's going on, if I'm, you know, making a project and it's getting very difficult or, um, you know, personal problems, at least for those two hours, I can go in there and let it all go. And literally, uh, I was talking with Jason Manzoukas about this recently after we did an episode. It's just so nice to just, like, let it all go and laugh harder than you have laughed all week for that particular two hours and just be having such a good time. It's really the the most wonderful part of being a comedian is is the community of funny people that you surround yourself yeah. with. I mean, I envy you in the sense that... Thank you. Yeah. Well, I envy you. And you're tall, you're other handsome. Side. I mean, you're tall and more handsome. <laughs> Maybe less tall? I can't tell. No, but was there ever a pressure to it to for it to be good or for you to worry that you'd run out of things to say or anything like that? I don't think that there's a pressure of running out of things to say because usually if you listen to the show, we're not really saying anything. <laughs> it's just being kind of stupid. But um, there, there is pressure to it. You know, when it's working, which is, you know, 75% of the time, it's kind of effortless and you just go in and have fun. Right. Um, I remember David Letterman talking about um, what he liked in Guests and the perfect guest to him was someone who would come on and run the interview <laughs> and just talk a lot. Right. And where he could sit back and just throw a few questions in, you know. And so sometimes I think about that where, where maybe I'm just more attuned to it because I know the particulars of what makes a good guest to me. And then if I ever have an episode that I think, oh, this isn't all that great, and I put it out, sometimes it's people's favorite episodes. So, yeah. you know, it's, it, I, I can't really predict it, honestly. And I think I'm a little too sensitive to, to my feelings of enjoyment during the show. Right. But um, the other part of it that's it's a little like, you know, comedy alchemy to me of when I'm booking a show is, um, you know, usually it's me and three other people, a celebrity and then two comedians right. playing fake people. And it's like trying to predict the future. You're, you're, you're sitting there going like, okay, well, I have Tatiana Maslany is the, our, our real guest. What comedians would work well with her or, and would work well together? And so you get that in your mind of like, okay, this is going to be the episode that... I've mixed the perfect I've mixed, ingredients. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then when it doesn't go exactly the way that you thought, it can be a little bit of a, oh, man, if only I had you know, made different ingredients, you know, who knows what, but but that's also the joy of it is sometimes you just put something together and you're like, this is definitely not gonna work. This is too many wildly disparate elements. And then suddenly it's magic. Hey folks, I wanna take a minute and talk about one of this week's sponsors, Buffy. What is Buffy? Well, Buffy makes super soft, earth-friendly bedding because a comfy night's sleep is even comfier when it doesn't harm the environment. Buffy brings you everything you need, from cult favorite comforters to pillows and sheets, to turn your bed into a calming comfort zone. Now, I will tell you, I have a Buffy comforter on my bed, and what I like most about it is that it is not only soft and breathable, but it also doesn't have any weird smell to it. All of their products are made with recycled fibers and cool-to-the-touch eucalyptus fabric that's softer and more breathable than cotton to keep you at an ideal sleeping temperature all night long. And I don't know about all of you, but I hate getting hot when I sleep. And if you get hot when you sleep and you have air conditioning, then you end up using more energy, which is harmful to the environment and harmful to your monthly bill. So if you're not under a comforter that breathes and gives you a good night's sleep, well, then you could definitely improve your sleep experience. 
The best thing about Buffy is you can sleep with Buffy bedding in your own home before buying it with a free trial, free shipping, and free returns every day. So feel for yourself why over 17,000 customers have given Buffy five stars. And for our listeners, you can take $20 off with the code CAMERA at Buffy.co. That's $20 off by using the code CAMERA at Buffy.co. So what are you waiting for? You can use Buffy's free trial and find out what kind of sleep you've been missing. And like I said, I use this on my own bed, and I love it. So check it out. And remember to use the code CAMERA at checkout for $20 off. Now back to the show. I want to back up for a little bit and just... I want to I want to share your bona fides with everybody because mm. you do a lot of stuff. You you've had Comedy Bang Bang for 10 years as a podcast. It was a TV show for 5 years on yeah. IFC. You've written films, you were nominated for an Emmy on Mr. Show, you've won two Emmys for Between Two Ferns. In my mind, you've become sort of the Carson of the podcast world mm. in the sense that comedians want to come on your show as a oh now I'm legitimate. Yeah, it is weird that I I've, I've I mean, I don't think you can call podcasting as part of the comic establishment necessarily, I I but think, I think that is changing to where it, it is. I, I think a little bit, yeah. Especially yeah. now that Conan O'Brien has one and is on the cover of Variety as having invented podcasting. Um, I, I think, uh, <laughs> but but it, it, it is interesting growing up in the alternative comedy scene, which is where I started in the in 1995. Um, we were always the people who were just sort of, you know, kicking against the establishment and, and railing against, you know, the, the, the Tim Allens and the, you know, uh, more established comedians. And now, slowly, most of the people from that scene have all become major stars. Right. Zach Galifianakis. Uh, Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt, Bob Silverman. Odenkirk. You yeah. Know, which, by the way, I saw Bob Odenkirk recently after I stopped doing my television show, and um, we were at a wedding together, and he said, so uh, what are you gonna do now that you're done with the TV show? And I said, "Uh, I don't really know. And he goes, well, why not become a dramatic actor? Like, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. (laughs) Exactly. Like, Bob, (laughs) not all of us can do what you do. But yeah, all all these uh, alternative comedians are now, you know, Part of the mainstream and, and Comedy Bang Bang sort of is in podcasts, which is a rel- relatively nascent art form. Um, you know, we're we're one of the old guard now, right, right? You know, is there any place still in the back of your mind that fears that it could all be taken away? Yeah, I think sometimes about you know, I think at what point do people figure out that it's all. A scam. <laughs> they were all it's, it's all a grift. <laughs> no, um, I, I do think about it. I, th- I think everyone must think that, you know. And honestly, I'm told that quite often uh, on uh, Twitter.com, which is a wonderful website where we seem to have given everyone our email addresses for right. some reason. Anyone can but, reach us directly. Yeah, at all sure. Hours of the that's day that's what I've always wanted. Is please have a direct line, <laughs> direct to, access to, to shit talk. Me. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I do think about that a lot. Of of Especially, you know, as as your career progresses, there becomes fears of um, you know ageism and how at, at what point am I too old to do this? At what point, you know, does Comedy Bang Bang, which has been around for ten years, at what point do people say like, oh, that old thing instead of this like vibrant right. current yeah. thing? Yeah. Um, I try to mitigate that by 
constantly refreshing the talent that comes on to Comedy Bang Bang. Because comedy really has a, a, a short shelf life in most people's lives. When they're really into it. When they're really into comedy, when they follow comedy. And that's 15 to 22, maybe. And then the responsibilities of life come up and, um, and, they, and they stop paying attention to it. And so if you're only aiming for the audience that you're growing up alongside, they eventually will abandon you. Right. <laughs> um, so what this I found is really depressing, by the yes. way. Yes. So what I found with with comedy death ray is I constantly had to cycle in new young people because that way it's fresh for the new crop of 15, 16 year olds who are suddenly start getting into the show. Right. Especially in an entertainment career, you're never really you can't settled be comfortable, and you're you're never. You comfortable. have to constantly reinvent what you do every three years. Maybe right. I found when I started doing Mr. Show, I was 28, and I thought I'd made it. I was like, I'm on my generation's Monty Python, and you know, this is it. I can coast from now on. I'm going to be thrown jobs for the rest of my life. Then I wrote a script that was very popular. That that you know, a lot of people wanted to make. And I was like, great, okay. And then cut to three years later, my agent's saying like, you need to do something new. <laughs> you know, everyone's read your script. No one cares about Mr. Show anymore. Like you need to, to constantly, re and, and so I found that no matter what you're doing, you can't really get too comfortable in show business because there's always gonna be someone behind you who's doing the new thing and, and you know you have to sort of keep proving yourself, which right. is exhausting. It's exhausting, but also, to me, that's the most exciting period in, in this career that we've chosen is when you do find the thing that excites you anew and you get to go make it. Those are the parts, like to me, I don't, I don't consider the best parts of my life the times where um, I had made it and I was sitting back figuring out how to repeat what I had made. Oh, I love those times. You do. <laughs> I don't know what trip you're on, but uh, <laughs> I love it when I can relax and count my money. <laughs> I, One, I, I love two, your three. I'm counting singles. Oh, you are? Because, yeah, I mainly get paid in singles these days. Um, no, you know, if you, when I first started doing comedy, I, in my mind, I wanted to get on Mr. Show and I wanted to do stuff like what Monty Python did. I wanted to have TV shows and, and movies. And that was really all I thought about. So to know that I think if, if I had a legacy, uh, you know, before the world burns, um, it, it would be as a podcaster is kind of fascinating to me, you know, because podcasting was always a side gig to me while I did my movies and TV shows but it's the thing that most people know me from now. Hey folks, let's take a little break so I can talk to you about our advertiser this week, The Real Real. The Real Real is the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment goods from top designers. And it gives you an opportunity to own iconic luxury items at unreal values. You can shop from designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. And new arrivals come in daily, and every single item is authenticated by The Real Real's team of experts. In fact, The Real Real employs over 100 brand authenticators, gemologists, horologists. Oh, I found out what that word means, by the way. Which is the study and measurement of time. So they've got some crazy bent-over watchmakers there studying old Rolexes, which is pretty cool. And they have art curators from around the globe. 
And all these folks inspect thousands of items each day to ensure that every item is 100% expert authenticated. So don't buy your Rolex from some dude on, I don't know, where dudes sell Rolex watches these days, but go to the real real. It's a unique shopping experience. It's a history lesson. And it's also just fun to see all this amazing design. You can shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion, as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home goods. The Real Real is also a real store. You can shop online or visit one of their original stores in Soho or West Hollywood, or their newest location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. You can also visit one of their luxury consignment offices in Chicago, Dallas, Miami, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., and if you go in the store, new customers receive an automatic $25 off at checkout. What I find amazing about The Real Real is that you find these amazing items and you think it's going to be really expensive, and then you realize it's actually affordable to own a piece of history. When you browse The Real Real, it gives you a sense of the history of design and art and brands going back hundreds of years. So be prepared to go down the rabbit hole, be prepared to look up from your counter and find that the sun's gone down, and be prepared to covet and desire thousands of things that you didn't even know you were excited about before you went to therealreal.com. It's that great of a site. You can shop in-store, online, or you can download the app. And for our listeners, you can get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com and use the promo code REAL for 20% off select items. Now back to the show. I was curious if when you were growing up, if radio was something that you were into. Yeah, radio was always really big and, and the DJs especially. Um, I thought that was maybe an area I could get into is, is being a radio DJ, which I think is why I started the podcast is I likened it to radio. And I was like, well, I've always wanted to have a radio show. Okay, let me try it out, you know. Um, but it, it really was an obsession where I would make my own radio shows with my my uh, tape recorder, um, you know, those long rectangular things. Oh, yeah, the that, realistic. Yeah, yeah. So you, you press record and play at the same time. I would tape the, the songs off the radio, and hopefully you could get a clean edit where they played it from all the, the, through, from the yeah. beginning and all the way through before someone talked. And that way you could talk over it as the song faded out. You could be, you know, have your own fake radio station and do comedy bits, and I would, like, write funny comedy bits that I would do with my friends and, and make these tapes of like fake radio shows. God, we had a parallel upbringing. Yeah. We did the same exact thing. And we'd even have characters. And <laughs> I remember once my friend wanted me to say, damn. Oh no. And I was in third grade and I, I was like. That's tough for a third grade. And I grader. thought my mom's gonna hear this tape. Right. Like yeah. how she would ever she hear this tape have, well, or care. I don't know if your mom was like my mom, she would have heard the tape somehow. Really? Yeah, yeah. So did you grow up, did you have sort of a religious, more strict upbringing? Yeah, yeah. So how did that affect you getting into comedy and like the, did you have to hide things from your parents? Yeah, it was interesting because when I started doing plays, my parents would come to every play. And I remember I, I played Billy Flynn in Chicago when I was 17 at the Orange County High School of the Arts. And I remember uh, my you were, you were into musicals. and Musicals, yeah, I yeah. sang and <clears throat> did opera competitions and stuff. And so I remember my father like came to that one and, and said, I don't think this is a play that high schoolers should be doing. <laughs> really? And I was like, Dad, I get it. I'm 17, but I still understand, you know, like the themes, the mature themes of this. But... Um, so I would have to hide things from them. And when I got, when I started doing comedy, 
1995, I was 25, but I was still like, you know, Orange County is not that far away from LA. It felt weird to not invite them to see me do it, but I knew they would hate it. So then when I started on Mr. Show, of course I had to tell them, but it's, you know, the, the thing about Mr. Show, if people haven't seen it, is it, it's a sketch comedy show where people curse a lot, you yeah. know, which was very exciting in the 90s because sketch comedy shows were all like SNL, very, you know, pretty clean. Um, so to, to hear people saying the F word in sketches was just very thrilling yeah, <laughs> for yeah, some yeah. reason. But I had to tell them about it, but I knew they would hate it. And uh, I remember, you know, my father at one point saying like, I just am never going to watch it ever again. I'm sorry. I just don't like it. Really? <laughs> um, so he couldn't get past that. He couldn't get past it. Um, and so, but the, the, it was very frustrating. And so I was still kind of looking for things to do that would make my parents proud. Um, and so I started working on uh, an animated film, the DreamWorks film Shark Tale. Yeah, um, pretty safe, I would think. Yeah, pretty, yeah. yeah it was a PG, I think. Yeah. Um, and so very excited, I invited them to the premiere, thinking finally I have something that they can watch. And uh, we watched it, the lights came up, and I remember my father saying, well, that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> I will never please them and I can finally stop trying. And I don't mean to say it like they're total backwards, you know, country bumpkins. Okay, they are, but um, but no, uh, you know, I would watch David Letterman who was a, a big influence on me and my father would watch it and would laugh. And, and so it was, it, it's not to say that, you know, uh, anything at all in the show business was was not their cup of tea, but I just think anything with cursing was is is kind of hard for them to stomach. Right. Well, another thing that I found out we had in common is that right at about the same age, we both made fake talk shows. Like I made the Dick Friendly show, which mm. was basically a thinly veiled Letterman spoof, and right. we had our version of Stupid Human Tricks, which was stair Dumb. banister racing, oh, okay. where we we'd put motorcycle helmets on and slide down banisters. Yeah, and it race. was like a, a jackass before. It yes, was jackass. it was a little bit of jackass, a little bit of mm. Letterman. Um, but I read that you did your own David Letterman type of show right. at school, right? Yeah, so uh, at the public access station in Cyprus, um, they had a show called Centurion Highlights because uh, Cyprus High School, I don't know if you remember, the we Centurions. were the Centurions. That was your mascot. Yes. Yeah. Um, so when I was 16, my friend Craig Brasco, uh, he was the anchor on what was kind of started out to be a fairly serious news program about whatever was going on in the high school. So I think it came out once a month. Right. So um, it was current events. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> incredibly current. Um, whatever happened in the previous 30 days. So a lot of sports scores. Right. But because I was on the newspaper uh, class, you know, the, the people putting together the high school newspaper, I think they asked me um, to do a, um, a piece for the show, and they suggested that I do a piece on how the town of Cyprus got its name. And they gave me a, a local article that was in the local paper um, with all the facts about okay. how the town got its name. And so I was very into David Letterman and how just sarcastic he was. Um, so I, I wrote a very, very sarcastic, hard-hitting news piece on how the town of Cyprus got its name, where I was going to dig into the uh, investigative journalism part of it um, and, and spoke very seriously to the camera about, you know, the things I uncovered. 
and then it turned into jokes like um, there was a diner that I lived across the street uh, from called Al and Maggie's, and then one day it just was Maggie's. <laughs> and <laughs> Poor Al. So, yeah, so I did a whole segment on, like, what happened to Al and where is he and, um, you know, where has he disappeared to? So it was just very sarcastic, and um, they really enjoyed it. So then slowly over the next couple of years, my friend Craig got too busy to do the show, and it just kind of, like, became a show that I hosted and just did a comedy show, basically. But a few years back, there's a comedian, Jen Kirkman, who did a show at UCB where she said, bring old embarrassing tapes from when you were young. So I brought the tape of me with the show and and I played it. And after the, the show, she said to me, you were supposed to bring something you'd be embarrassed by, not something you'd be doing now. <laughs> and Basically, you hadn't changed. I hadn't changed at all, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, not the greatest news to hear. <laughs> or maybe it's that, you know, you were, you were right where you wanted to be all along. I mean, I think I, I was very just drawn to David Letterman's, you know, sarcasm and, and, and not taking the world too seriously. And I think that became sort of a through line in my personality for uh, quite a long time where teachers would get very upset with it. And, you know, I went to an acting school that was very, very serious. And they could never quite understand that side of my personality or why I would be doing the the weird things in my school projects that I would be doing. Like, what's an example of that? What's a picture in your head of the weird things? Well, the worst one that, that almost got me kicked out of school was I had a, uh, a project for my ballet class where um, all we were supposed to do is incorporate some of the moves we learned in ballet into it. <laughs> But my friends and I, instead, we decided to, first I got up and read a speech about the uh, environment and how our world was crumbling um, <laughs> and that this dance would reflect that. And then we did a, a full dance to Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, which is a six and a half minute long song, I believe where uh, it was called Ecosphere 90, I believe, where uh, one of us was a bird, one of us was a cat, and one of us was a worm, and we were all chasing each other around the stage doing See, ballet this moves. was the video you were supposed to play at UCB. Yes, yeah. So then, the, so that would have been bad, bad enough because we weren't really taking it seriously, but we had the, the funny idea, because Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, maybe you know this, is track one on Off the Wall. Yes. We said, what if we then, like, everyone applauds, the song's over. What if it just rolled right into track two uh, and we played poker during the entirety of act two? <laughs> and the song ended, we're all posing, and then the next song starts and we sit down and we start dealing each other a poker game. And that lasted about a minute where the, the instructors finally figured out nothing was going to change and they were just going to be watching poker for the rest of the song and they got up and stopped it. And I got called into meetings and I was just trying to explain like it's an art piece and some people students were like brilliant like they got it but the teachers rightly probably were like you're not taking this seriously enough and so that that's always been sort of the push and pull of of my career in a way before I got into comedy is like you're not taking things seriously enough you're not taking things seriously enough and when I got into comedy it was like oh yeah this is great you don't take things seriously enough do you know what that's a really succinct way to put that, because it, it is hard to define 
what influence someone like Letterman had now because you don't understand that he was the first at doing it on yeah. television where he really did want to poke holes in everything that was supposed to be holding our values. He really popularized irony. Um, and when I would see in the 90s people trying to sort of incorporate it like it was a new thing, uh, I, I would just be like, you know, Letterman's already did this. The, the, the first season of the CBS show Big Brother, they were very proud because it was, I believe, a Swedish format that they took over here. And so they were trying to, trying to do some of the Swedish stuff where they like had a, they had chickens and they had a camera just on the chickens and they're like a chicken cam right and this is like 2002 and i'm like uh check out david letterman who's been doing that for you know with the monkey cam and yeah you know for the past two decades you know so he he really is the first person who came out and said you know television doesn't have to be as serious as everyone takes it right but um I was in a band when I was in college, and we would go to coffee shops and see other bands. And the worst thing you could say is, is you'd watch their set, and my friend and I would look at each other and say, well, they were very sincere. <laughs> right. And yet, if someone was not taking themselves seriously enough, then it's like a joke thing. The trick, I think, in something is to, you know, and we, we found this with, with Comedy Bang Bang, the television show is, and a lot of the shows that I produce is, okay, comedians, you're very funny. We can make people laugh, but what are you trying to say? Right. And so with Comedy Bang Bang, that became a big, big discussion in the writer's room uh, of where I would get scripts from writers and we would, we would say, okay, these are all really good, but we need to be actually saying something about our subject. Otherwise, what are we doing here? And that's kind of the number one thing that you, you really have to go to is, is what are the themes? What are you trying to say about, about this? How is this reflective of your own life? How is it reflective of the world at large? And right. If you're not doing that, then, or at least trying to, um, you know, even have a, a sliver of that, then then you're just kind of making something silly. You know, at that point, it's uh, when I worked on Mr. Show, that was the difference between parody and satire to them, and that was a, a lesson I learned with them. Is is if you ever turned in a script and it was just parody um, of like, hey, this is a thing that is in pop culture and we're making we're it make silly. Fun of it. They wouldn't like that. They would they would always say, well, what are you trying to say about it? And that was a really good lesson to learn for me because then that's when I think, you know, my writing started to get a little deeper. Hey folks, let's take a short break from the conversation so I can tell you about Today Ticks, one of this week's sponsors. Today Ticks is an online ticketing platform and an app where you can get theater tickets at the best prices. What began in New York City as a revolutionary way to get Broadway tickets has now expanded to 16 cities across three continents with more than 5 million users. They have exclusive lottery and rush programs and an easy to use interface. So Today Ticks is making it convenient and accessible for users to get tickets to a variety of events in their city. And they're bringing new audiences to arts and culture every day. And Today Ticks can be your hub for all tickets because although they're great for last minute tickets, many people don't know that you can actually buy tickets months in advance. So whether you're feeling spontaneous or you just want to browse, you know you're getting the best prices when you scoop up some tickets on the Today Ticks app. With the app, getting tickets is fast, easy, and you can do it on your phone. 
You can avoid visiting box offices in person and waiting in line. Today Ticks does all the hard work for you. It's so convenient that Forbes magazine calls Today Ticks the Uber of Broadway tickets. Also, Today Ticks is a great way to be in the know about all the events going on in your town. You can use the app as inspiration for what you want to do this weekend or a weekend many months in advance. And did you know that Today Ticks were the ones that created the mobile rush and lottery programs for Hamilton and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Broadway? That's right, they invented that idea. And the thing is, it's not just Broadway and London's West End. You can also find tickets in cities across the country, including Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Sydney. You can download it once and use it wherever. You can also find tickets for comedy, dance, opera, and immersive theatrical experiences. Shows are constantly being updated to offer a variety of performances. Discover things you weren't looking for and things you already know you'll love. And look, in the world where Netflix and Amazon and all kinds of appointment TV draw us to our couch and say, sit here and don't go out of your house, aren't we missing that communal culture experience that theater provides? With Today Ticks, you can not only find great cultural experiences, but you'll get out and do things. And isn't that what life's for, getting out and doing things? So try Today Ticks. For our listeners here at Off Camera, they're giving us a special offer. You go to todaytix.com slash off camera and you use the promo code off camera to get $10 off your first purchase. So that's todaytix.com slash off camera and use the promo code off camera to get $10 off your first purchase. So get off the couch, go out in the world, see some theater, some opera, some interpretive dance, but get out there and get cultured and use Today Ticks to make it all easy. Now back to the show. Tell me the circumstances for how you met Bob Odenkirk, because I find that fascinating, and I don't know if I know the whole story. Well, I, I technically met him before I ever started doing comedy. I had a friend, Maleva Barbula, and she had a roommate who was a comedian. So she was kind of plugged into the, the comedy, the alt-comedy scene, and so I went to a party that, that she invited me to, and, and she introduced me to Bob, who I did not know. Um, little did I know he was a cast member on the Ben Stiller show, which I had watched and I knew his work, you know, but you I didn't, didn't put it together. I didn't recognize him. And so he, she was like, hey, this is Bob. He's a writer and, and Scott's a writer. You, you guys should talk. So he just was like, hey, what do you, what do you write? I want to read some of your stuff. Like, where have you written before? Um, and I had to say like, oh, I've never written anywhere, but I have a script uh, if you want to read it. And, and I think I sent it to him and never heard anything back. But the, the real first time that he remembers meeting me is, is my friend Maleva, um, she hated my scripts that I would write because <laughs> I was kind of writing more serious, like, you know, plays and, and, and I had written a one-hour drama. Do you see yourself as a, like a Sam Shepard or? Kind of like a David Mamet, you okay. know, wh who, who could write jokes. That was sort of what I was, was going for. Is you were like, going for the whole package. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So she hated those, and she was. I, I remember very distinctly getting a phone call. By the from way, her. David Mamet's watching this right now, going, "I can write jokes." Um, <laughs> I'd love it if David Mamet was watching this right now. Yeah, I, I'd like to think he is. Yeah. Um, but I remember the phone call with her where she said I had given her my script, and she called me, and she goes, "It's just not good." <laughs> like she goes, "I really hate it." But, um, which is not what you want to hear from a friend. Usually you like them to couch it a little bit more. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to feel bad for you. Like your dad's <laughs> like, I'm just never going to watch yeah. it. Your friends um, are like, this is where no it good. all comes from. But she said, my roommate, you know, does comedy and, and um, 
they do comedy at the comedy store every Sunday night, um, and they would put you up if I asked them to. Based on um, what? She goes, you're a really funny guy. Just because we hung out all the time, and I was constantly like making jokes, and she's like, you're really funny around the house, and when we hang out, have you ever thought about doing comedy? And I had done stand-up once at Cypress College. They had a competition really? when, I was, when I was 18, and I did 10 minutes that I just wrote just for that. Um, and it was a competition to open for a comedian that was going to play the college, right? Okay. And I remember getting second place with just jokes I'd written just for that. And it was like a very, uh, you know, clear impression of Jerry Seinfeld, I think, you know, doing observational stuff, you know. And I won second place. I didn't, I didn't get the job to actually do it, which when I went to see the actual gig was a godsend because the person who won got heckled like <laughs> so bad. I was like, oh, cool. I got to, you know, win second place and do it, but without all of the hassle of being heckled. Right. So I had done it once, but I, I had never really thought that I could do it professionally because I, you know, I think growing up in Orange County, you view Los Angeles as like this unobtainable goal, even though it's 45 minutes away. Yeah. It's a different world. And all I would ever hear growing up is like, you have to know someone. I think there's something to that where the closer you are to the thing, like you're deeper in the shadows for some reason. For some reason, it just, you think you can't do it. Whereas my here wife- in Ohio, you're like, what the heck? Yeah. Like, I'll go out to LA. My wife who grew up in Minnesota was like, the minute she turned 18, she's like, bye-bye and moved to LA, you know, moved downtown. Right, but with growing up in Orange County, you're, you didn't have to move, so it's like- so You're also like driving. Yeah. I have a friend who drove to auditions from Orange There's County. There's no commitment because you don't have to get an apartment in Hollywood. Yeah. And, we had yeah. an actor actually on the Bang Bang television show who was recurring and they were, driving up from Fullerton every time we had to do the show. And finally they said that they couldn't keep driving up from Fullerton to do the show. And so they passed on doing the, the next 10 episodes. They were in 10 episodes and then we offered them You're 10 more. Me. They're like, I can't keep driving up from Fullerton to do this. <laughs> I'm You're just like, like, move. Yeah, move. That's all it takes. But um, yeah, so I, I never thought I could do comedy because it just seemed like a very far away thing. And, 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 but my friend saying, hey, just try it one night. Maybe you'll like it. it it's, it's what started the whole thing. And then it went so well that they said, come back two weeks later. And, and I went up again. And were you up solo or with your friend? I was with my friend who, okay. who I'd moved up here from Orange County with. And that second week, um, that bit ended with me, uh, as most of our bits did, me crying and running out of the theater <laughs> in tears, as a bit. <laughs> um, and as I ran off, Bob came up to my friend and said, hey, you guys are really funny. Um, you should write on my show, Mr. Show. And at that point, I had gotten to know Bob's work. I went to go see some of the live shows that, that they did in order to get Mr. Show and became very influenced by him and, and was basically doing an imitation of, of Bob and David, you know, the kind of thing they would be doing. Because so he saw you doing it. He saw it. me doing it and, 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 you know, when you're producing a show, you just, you need material. Right. And they saw some people who, like, were, you know, doing something in their sensibility. And it's like that Tony Robbins thing where, you know, he says, you know, sit the same way and copy the gestures of the person across oh, right. from you. That. And wait, is that what I'm doing? I know, right? <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> oh. Okay, <laughs> this is a good no, bit. But this, this Welcome is... to another episode of Good Bits. <laughs> 
Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Now, if you're an artist and you're trying to make a living in this crazy world of entertainment, or if you are a business owner, or you are an entrepreneur, or anybody who is trying to carve their own path, then you know that the mental side of it is 90% of success. And if you're like me, you've done some therapy in your life to try to figure out where your obstacles are and where some of your baggage comes from. And I think if I've learned anything, it's that there are always roadblocks that prevent us from happiness or from achieving our goals. And that's why I've gone for years and tried to figure myself out because I don't think you can be successful without really knowing yourself first and achieving some level of self-awareness. And now there's a really interesting new way to do just that, and it's called BetterHelp. BetterHelp is online counseling, and they offer licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, all kinds of things. And you can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And of course, anything you share is confidential, and it's obviously really convenient. So you can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus you can chat and text with your therapist. And best of all, if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge, because truly finding the right therapist is half the battle. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for off-camera listeners, BetterHelp is offering 10% off your first month by using the discount code CAMERA. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com camera. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash camera and use the code camera for 10% off. Now back to the show. So with relatively no experience, Bob sees you, hires you as a writer. You really hadn't written sketch well, for the he, most part. He wanted to, he wanted to hire us, um, but that was the first season and I think they had enough material. So it actually took three years then for him to, to hire me. So in that three years, which was a good thing, I think, because if I were thrown into the deep end right away, I don't know if I would have survived. Um, but for those three years, I then just did as much comedy as I could. And I did bits on stand-up shows as much as possible, put up my own sketch shows, rented theaters, because uh, places like the UCB weren't around. That so you would sort of be an organizer as well. Yeah, so I found then, like, you have to hustle and do it for yourself if you're gonna make stuff happen right. because no one's just throwing opportunities at you, you know? So, so I, I just did as much comedy as I could and I kept inviting Bob to it. And Bob was very, very nice. He would be in the show sometimes. We would write him a sketch and he would be in it. I remember one time he came to see the show and said, hey, uh, what if I came up and introduced you? And he came up and did five minutes before us to, because he was well known and established yeah, and right. to, to sort of like legitimize us, you know? Um, so he was very, very generous that way, um, and and I was just putting up shows as much as I could to sort of not only learn how to do sketch, but like say to him, like, "Hey, remember when you said I should work on Mr. Show? Like, I'm here's yeah. some stuff I'm doing." I, I know that feeling of like, I don't want to ask him outright, but I want to connect all the dots. But what I learned is I should have asked him outright because the third season of Mr. Show came around. And I remember being very upset that a, a, another person got hired instead of me. But what that person did was wrote a sketch packet. And I thought I was auditioning in life and showing him that I was doing sketch all the time. And I thought he would, at that point, just be like, yeah, that guy, yeah, come on, let me hire you. 
And instead, this guy wrote, without any uh, prompting, wrote a sketch packet of, of, of sketches that he thought would be good on the show and gave it to Bob after a show one day. And Bob read it and showed it to David, and they were like, these are perfect. Yeah, okay, you're hired. And so he got the job on the third season instead of me. And that's when I started realizing, oh, I, I have to be a little more assertive. Right. And that's when I said, like, hey, I would love to ride on the next season if I could. And I wrote a packet. And a few of those sketches from the packet got onto the show. So, you know, I think that's what happened finally is, like, hey, we need these sketches because they're really funny. Let's hire Scott to be on the show, finally. At that point, did you see yourself more of as a writer or as a performer? I thought I was going to be a writer-performer and, and um, sort of like the guys in Python who wrote all their sketches and then acted and stuff that they didn't write. And um, uh, I, I definitely was shooting for that. My first job was a deal for a show that I was going to star in. And um, then that didn't get made, and it, it kind of... The, the other thing that happened was I, I got so tired of going to auditions. Um, auditions in LA are so difficult because they're all over the place. Right, for sure, yeah. And I remember one time I went to audition at Sony, which is the furthest uh, point from anywhere on earth. <laughs> yep. um, and I remember walking in to the casting director's office and she took one look at me and said, oh, you're not right. And I said, oh, okay, and I'd driven so long to get there. And I think she saw it on my face and she said, uh, tell you what, here's another part that you could read for. And she gave me a script and she goes, that, that part right there. And I say, the one that has one word? She goes, yeah, 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 do it. And I said, no. And she said, perfect, <laughs> thank you so much. And of course I didn't get it. And I was like, what, what am I doing this for? I just got very, very tired of auditioning. And meanwhile, as a writer, I had studios saying like, hey, here's hundreds of thousands of dollars to write a movie. I mean, that's what I pretty much chose is, is I'm just gonna stay home all day writing movies for a lot of money rather than traveling all day. Did you grow up ever thinking like, I want that performing attention? I, that... I did though, see that's, you the, did. that's the hard part. So, so I went into a kind of a 10 year period where I was only writing. And not even, I, I did the show at UCB in a comedy death ray and I was kind of barely performing on it because I hated shows. Were you more hosting? I wasn't even hosting. I wasn't even going up. I was just producing it. Because there were shows, including I think one that you probably went to a few times, uh, that the producer of it would put themselves on every single week. Yeah. And they were always the worst people on the show. And that, and that became a knock against comedians who produce shows is like, they always have to put themselves up. And so I, I got too freaked out by that. So I was like, I'm, I, when I produce a show, I'm not gonna host it every week and make people watch me. And I think I overcorrected because then you see other shows like The Meltdown with Kumail and, yeah, and Jonah yeah. and they host every week and it's like people love it and it makes them perform every week. And, you and saw one bad version of it and you were like... A few bad versions. There, there right. are a lot of bad comedians doing shows. No, but I, I relate shows, to that but, because, yeah. because I do think if you have a certain sense of integrity and, and a desire to be great, um, you can impose this set of rules on yourself that, yeah. that hold you back. They held me back and I, I really should have been performing more on that show and instead I gave up on performing because I was writing movies until 2009 when I, as a, on a lark, started 
the podcast. And that's when suddenly I started performing again. And even when I started the podcast, I was like, I'm not gonna be the one shining. I'm gonna shine a light on the comedians who come on. And I'm just gonna be a host and ask questions and set them up for bits and what stuff. What do you think that is? I think I just got in my head about like, uh, I'm not, no, there are so many more talented people than me out there. No one needs to see me performing. And I can still think that way. I mean, I had a, a show for 110 episodes where, you know, the, the, one of the biggest knocks on it that I, that I would always hear is, is like, eh, it's a funny show, but I hate the host, you know? And it's like, really? at a certain point, there's nothing you can do about that. Your, your body is your body and your personality is your personality and you're unique. And we're all just trapped in these bodies that our parents gave us. And, you know, who knows why some are more aesthetically pleased. Well, it's symmetry, you know, but, um, you know. You're very hard on yourself. <laughs> but it's, it, it really is just a thing where who cares, you know, not everyone's going to like everything. So at, at a certain point, it's just like, forget it. I'm just going to be the host and and... I mean, I thought I was good on the show, so and, and it, I would watch him and laugh. So that's really all I care about. That's an interesting thing, and I, I, I do think that, and maybe it's Orange County, it's that it's presumptuous to think that yeah. you can do that and that people will want to see it. And there are these people you read about, like Matthew McConaughey, for instance, who yeah. was discovered in Austin by the casting agent who found Sean Penn for Fast Times, right? And just like went up to him in a bar and the casting director looked at him and said, oh, you're a movie star. <laughs> and said, come on out to California and live with me for, you right. know, and I'll introduce you to everyone you need that to. That never happened to you? That never happened for some reason. <laughs> I can't quite figure it out. But, you, you know, the Brad Pitts of the world, all these handsome people who have magnetic personalities who, who shine on camera, I'm very, very jealous of them, but the rest of us do what we can. Well, you've been doing amazing things for a long time, and I do think psychologically to think about taking yourself out of a thing or, or hoping Bob comes to you so you don't have to come to him, and mm -hmm. those things are interesting to me, and it sounds like he's your mentor in some ways. In a lot of ways, I mean, we, he, he gave me my first job, he taught me so much. I mean, I learned so much about writing yeah. from him. You know, in my mind, I thought I was a, a craftsman and I would like labor over where the periods went and the, the word choice. Um, and TV uh, does not have the time nor the patience for that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> I found out. And I remember uh, at one point on Mr. Show, someone wrote a sketch and they had written it for three days and they finally brought it to a table read. And Bob was so upset and he was like, why did you write this for three days? And none of us could quite figure out what he was upset about and he goes, well, now you love it, and I'm just gonna sit here and tear it apart. You could have written it in two hours, and it would be just as good, and we would be that much closer to it being good. But instead, you've, you've sat here for three days, and you're gonna take it very personally, whatever I say to you, because you've labored over it. And, and were you an observer in that conversation? I was an observer on that one. What did you I, take from that? What I took from that is, and, and this is the process now, is things are going to be terrible when you write them. You know, but they're gonna have a spark to it. And comedy is all about just goofing around, essentially, you know? And so, if you're goofing around when you write it and just making yourself laugh, making the other people you're writing it with laugh, that's gonna show up in the writing. And so you may as well just write it really quick. And that way, when you're making TV, um, at the pace that you have to do it at, 
you need to write a lot of material. And so let's just get it over with, just write it. Um, and then we can do the work after you write it. I think that's a great look into what your show is. I think that Comedy Bang Bang is the best example of being able to peel back the curtain and see the process of how comedians shape bits, how they construct a comedic premise or whatever. It's this idea of, let's not make this so precious. Let's, let's be in it and let's present be in the moment. with it. Yeah, yeah, in the moment. You can hear the moments when people lock into something. I've always found that very interesting. You can just hear on a podcast people's mental calculations of when they suddenly change something into something hilarious or get something. And so that's what's really cool about the show to me is, is hearing all of us find it in the moment, um, which when I did the TV show, that was an important part that I didn't want to lose, which is why the uh, interviews on the show were improv and I would never tell anyone the questions I was going to ask. And it's the same thing with Between Two Ferns. We never show the questions to any of the guests when we're doing them. And a lot of people are, you know, they want to know, like, what kind of thing are you going to be asking me so they can prepare? And we say, no, we, we don't want you to prepare. Like, we want you to be in the moment. Yeah, okay, well, let's talk about Between Two Ferns because I've been a fan of it since the beginning. But I was curious, what about it continues to be something where it's new ground for comedy? Well, I, I feel like we were very protective of it and didn't want to burn people out on it, which I think was... So there's not a ton of them. ...a smart decision. We've only right. done 20 episodes over yeah. 10 years. And, and when we were doing them a lot, um, we very intentionally made a three-month break in between episodes coming out. Because what I found was uh, people would forget about it and then suddenly a new one would pop up and they would say, oh, hilarious, I love these. But also I think there's a certain level that Zach, uh, there's a certain theme that Zach has always been very interested in, which is taking the piss out of celebrity. And the fact that he became a huge celebrity five or six episodes in yeah. has only sort of- Did that start before The Hangover? It did, it yeah. It did, okay. Our, I believe our fifth, or sixth episode was with Bradley Cooper and we filmed it the weekend The Hangover came out. Right. And Zach had kept saying over some previous episodes, he goes, do you know Bradley Cooper? I think he'd be good on the show. And in my head I was going, the dude from Alias? No one knows who he is. Why would we have him on the show? And then he was like, hey, I'm in this movie The Hangover and they're willing to, to you know, pay us five grand to do an episode with Bradley in it. And I was like, yeah, okay, that'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, then realized how hilarious Bradley is. But the, but the hangover hadn't come out yet, you know? Right. But yeah, so Zach became a celebrity. And I feel like his feelings about celebrity culture became even more hardline because he, he started to hate everything that was, you know, the way he was being treated differently and the, and the way that, that people treat celebrities in general and the, and the press cycles that he had to do. And so the show it, for us is always, ha, has always been about taking celebrities and celebrity culture down a peg um, and treating celebrities as if they're not special. Right. And I think that's something that people want to see. And, and and people can fake it, uh, and, and they can, now talk shows are sort of all about, hey, look at the celebrity doing things that the common person does. They're playing beer pong, but it feels like a stunt 
in a way. It feels like something that now is on their press schedule and they're like playing along with to keep everyone happy. Um, and I think some celebrities are like, why do I have to do this? It, it used to be so easy. I used to be like put up on a pedestal and I would come out on a talk show and talk for five minutes. And now I have to like sing. But people like to see celebrities being told that they suck. <laughs> and, and celebrities, if they play along with it, they look very cool. And if they have a sense of humor about it, then um, they look like they're a good sport. And that's why people who come on the show, we've had so many people turn the show down, but the people who come on the show, I think people have an affinity for them afterwards that you just can't fake uh, by going on another talk show and pretending to, to play a game or something. Well, I would say that the awkwardness is so authentic because the questions are so pointed toward actual things that really cut to the quick of the bane of that celebrity's existence. And questions are very mean. They're very mean. And it's surprising at the the end credits of the Between Two Ferns movie, there's basically the, not the bloopers, but outtakes. the behind the scenes, the yeah. outtakes. There, there, we decided to put in the times, and just some of the times, not all the times, where, where Zach and whomever the guest happens to be uh, break during the interviews right. to show that these are actually really fun <laughs> to film, but also that the celebrities are being good sports and, and are laughing at the questions as well instead of just getting insulted. What fascinates me is the, the writing session where you have to actually think about the worst things you could think to ask these folks. Yeah. And are there things that don't even make it because they're too mean? You know, I, I have a pretty pre-planned speech uh, now that I give everyone. What is the speech? The speech is essentially like, hey, I don't know if you've ever seen the show before, hoping that they have. And believe me, not everyone has seen the show. Is that true? Oh, yeah. There are some people who, uh, without naming names, don't even know who Zach is. <laughs> so I'll say, have you ever seen the show? And if they haven't, I'll say, okay, so the process is basically... Zach has a bunch of questions he's going to ask you. We're not going to show them to you beforehand. And this is the part where I sort of start to gear up and I say, um, but the questions can be kind of mean-spirited and they're sort of like a, a roast, but it's all in good fun. And if there's anything that ever comes up that is a subject that you don't want you know, us to talk about, you can just say to, to me or to Zach, like, hey, let's not talk about that. We want you to have a good time. The questions are just mean. We don't actually feel this way. They're just mean to be mean, <laughs> you know? That's usually what I would say. And the people who know the show, like Keanu Reeves, for instance, right. I started in on the speech. I was like, so the questions can be a little mean. And he cut me off and he goes, uh, yeah. That's why I'm here, you know? So, and, and when it's someone like that, you know, oh, good. They're a good sport. Right. They're going to play along. But yeah, occasionally in the moment, it, it happens usually once per interview. So the, the, the guest will say, hey, let's not do that one. And as a director, that's the challenge for me is, is like, usually these celebrities have only given you a limited amount of time. Right. Barack Obama said he would give us 45 minutes and instead gave us 20, you know? So it's like, I'm used to having to be in the moment and like figuring out how to get what we need without pissing the person off. I'm very used to being in this position where you only have a limited amount of time and you need to get your shot. And if they get upset, really upset and storm out or shut down, then you're, you're screwed, you know? So 
Um, it's a it's a very delicate balance. But what I also found is is like people coming into it know the show and they want the between two ferns experience. They do. So they want Zach to be mean. So when Zach Zach's a very very nice guy, and Zach feels bad saying these questions. And some of the reason that he's laughing so much in these outtakes that we have at the end of the movie is because he's he can't believe he's saying these things. To, and yeah. he's he feels so bad that he's insulting them. And sometimes, so sometimes we'll be in there and Zach will be like, say a question, laugh, say, I'm sorry, that's mean, that's too mean, that's too mean. And I'll, I'll sense that the person is like, no, they came here to be, for, they want to be in it. So Zach, like, stay, stay in character. Um, and, and that's what the person wants, you know? So it, it's kind of different for every person, but yeah, occasionally there's a little bit of tension. You know, it's funny, there's often a theme if it's a really handsome actor. It's that they're handsome and that's why they work. Right, yes. I'm thinking of the Brad Pitt episode where, you know, he was just, I don't know if he was totally into that or if he was... Oh, he was great. No, he, he wanted to do it. He asked right. to do the show. So Zach and, and Brad Pitt, they, they both were in a, a comfort zone where they could say and do anything. So that, that's when it's really good. Or John Hamm, for instance, who, he was our third episode ever. And he's been my friend for you know, before Mad Men. And so he's been on the show three times and, you know, is always great to work with and is super comfortable. So, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a typical go-to for us when there's someone who's handsome like Bradley Cooper or, or whomever is just hit them on how untalented they are. Right. <laughs> um, you know, David Letterman's in the movie mm -hmm. and I was just curious what it felt like to meet him after growing up loving him. It was one of those things where um, we really wanted him in the movie, not only because of the thrill it would be for us to work with him, but there's a theme in the movie about um, how show business and having a talk show specifically won't make you happy. Uh, and we, we knew we really wanted to have someone in the movie who would experience that. And David Letterman, I think, is the most famous example of someone who had a talk show and is miserable doing it. So, sure, yeah. So it was important thematically, but as far as just personally, it was um, very nerve-wracking. You hear the parameters that you're given of, well, Mr. Letterman will give you two hours. Um, he doesn't want to act, uh, he, meaning don't. he doesn't want to do scenes, but then... You know, when I heard that, I knew that we wanted him, at least in one scene of the movie, where Zach asks him point blank about will a talk, having a talk show, will it make me happy? Right. And so what we worked around for that was it's an improv movie. So there really wasn't a script. There was an outline with jokes that I wrote. Um, but so we told him, like, hey, there's not a script. You're not going to be acting. Can just Zach asks you, ask you some questions in a different part of the movie? And he said okay to that. And Zach and I were very nervous. And and <laughs> the, we shot two different scenes with him. Only one ended up in the movie. But the first scene, I said, Zach, can you please ask him if he'll do this scene? And we had cleared it already. But right. you never know in the moment. But you if, were like, you ask him. Well, Zach's more famous than me. And right. Zach, and, and, he and what it turned out. He loves Zach. He loves Zach. He loves Between Two Ferns. He was so generous with his time and, and just so complimentary and had so much fun. But still, we're nervous. And, and I'm trying to get the shots, right? So I'm like, Zach, Zach, can you ask David Letterman if he'll do this scene? And Zach's like, because this is not his job. It should be my job. But, you know, I know if Zach asks, he'll probably say yes. So he says yes. We shoot the shot. 
And then we still have another scene to shoot. And I'm like, Zach, can you ask him about this other scene? And Zach goes, you ask him this time. I can't keep asking him to do scenes. So I went up to him and I said, there's another scene. I think that we had cleared it with your people. If it's okay, would you mind, you know? And he was just so generous. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And that scene ended up in the movie. Um, and But we had to do six takes of it, I think, because we weren't really landing on the theme that we wanted to. And I was, the whole time I'm like, he's gonna say, I don't wanna act. Why are we doing take after take after take of this? Um, but no, he was just very generous, kept doing takes, and on that sixth take, it was exactly what we needed. Isn't it funny how, because you had him on such a pedestal for all your life, you're so afraid that yeah. that he's going to call you out and say, this isn't working, well, again, I'm done. And I don't want his experience to be bad. That's the other thing. That's the whole, you know, me not asking uh, Odenkirk. But, uh, yeah. I don't want him to leave and say like, boy, that would have been fun, except they wanted me to, you know, do all this stuff, and the, the guy kept asking me to do stuff, and, you know? I want him to have a pleasant experience. I liked it in the retelling of it. He doesn't even know your name, it's just the guy. I'm sure he doesn't know my name. I saw, I saw, I've seen him once since then. And uh, a person from Netflix very generously reintroduced myself to him and said, Scott directed the movie. And he said, yeah, that was so fun. One of my favorite days ever. And But of course, no recognition on his face of me. Right. Because I also didn't want to be the guy who like sidles up to him and says, uh, Mr. Letterman, you're, you're, your comedy meant so much to me. You know, because... So you never told him. No, I did have the set photographer sneak pictures of me next to him anytime I would go up next to him to give him a direction. So it looks like we are in pictures. I mean, we are in pictures together, but it's not like a posed picture. It's me talking to him. But essentially, I'm like saying, hey, do you mind standing here? Do you mind standing there? Isn't it funny? After all this time and success and everything, you're still, there's a part of your mindset that says, I'm not allowed to go up to David and just tell him what I feel about him. And In my mind, he gets it all the time, right? Right and is tired of it, but who knows, maybe now that his show's not on the air, he doesn't get it all the time and misses it. I have no idea. Like, it would have been nice of me maybe to say something. But for me, for some reason, I couldn't have the conversation because I'm in host mode and I'm like, please have a good time being on our show. I also have my eyes on the prize, which is like, I need to do this movie. And sure. It, and our guest can't get upset and walk out for any reason. Like, I, I, it's it, But there is this undercurrent of, there's a possibility in your mind that I could upset the guest and have him yes. walk out if I asked too much. And but, but that is the case with every guest that I've had on the show. And quite honestly, having been in the experience where I've had approximately five people walk out of a show and uh, get very upset during something like this, uh, it's not a, a pleasant experience right. um, and, and screws your entire day. So doing the movie... It just became like, it's really fun when it's just you and the cast, but anytime a celebrity would come on that day, it's, it's you're walking on eggshells a little bit because you, you want, you, you never want to leave time on the table. You want, if they're going to give you 45 minutes, you want to be shooting for 45 minutes straight and you want to push it and see if they'll stay another 45, you know? But you also don't want them to be the person who just takes off their mic and gets upset and leaves after 10, you know? Because you have a job to do. So it, it, it was a very stressful movie to make um, because of that, but it was something that I felt prepared for because I've done 110 episodes with celebrities who all could have felt the same way on the comedy Bang Bang television show. That's right, show. yeah. 
Well, look, I think it's a great movie, and thank you. It's really funny. It's unexpected, and it's saying something. And the movie continued what the TV show does, which is it's it stays true to itself. And and I think you can lose your way on a film a lot of time. You so, can forget that people essentially just want you to goof around and be funny. Well, I'll, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, which is it's an impressive and admirable life that you can be that in the moment, surround yourself with that level of talent and get to be silly and not have that pressure. And, and it's impressive. And I, I've really Thank enjoyed you. talking to you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Sam. And, and it's it. nice to find out we, were, we led parallel lives for yeah. a while. Very, uh, they, parallel lines don't cross over, unfortunately, but they finally they have. I, so what does that say? So, I mean, they, they, maybe they were one degree off and we finally met. I like that you just corrected my analogy of parallel <laughs> lives for a while. And you're like, no, that, that doesn't make sense mathematically, Sam. <laughs> thanks, Sam. I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, I had thanks fun. for doing this. I'm just going to sit here for a while. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay, great. Hey folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. You know, it's hard to sit with the director of Between Two Ferns and not notice the parallels between this show and that show. But I had a really good time with Scott and it's so interesting to talk to somebody who's kind of doing what you're doing. And so if you haven't heard Comedy Bang Bang yet, check out his show. It comes on every week. It's been there for the last 10 years. I'm assuming it's gonna go on for a long, long time and it's worth a listen. It'll brighten up your day. Make sure to check out the Between Two Ferns movie on Netflix and all of the other Between Two Ferns sketches on Funny or Die. And if you want to take a deep dive into a talk show that's less awkward and way more in-depth, go to offcamera.com. We usually don't piss off our guests, and our interviews run more than five minutes. So if you haven't checked out offcamera.com, you're in for a real treat. First off, I really appreciate you listening to this podcast. And if you haven't yet subscribed to it, take a moment, hit the subscribe button, because that way you'll never miss an episode. They'll just show up right to your feed. And while you're doing that, take a minute, leave us a rating, leave us a review. That helps other people find the show. And as you'll find out on offcamera.com, we're also a television show, which you can watch every week on DirecTV's audience network. We are also on AT&T UVerse and Sky Arts throughout the UK. Also, occasionally we're on some Chinese airlines and you can find us in New Zealand and Australia. So we're around, but... If you don't have those services or don't want to take a flight just to see the show, then you can get our monthly subscription. For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've done, that's over 200 episodes, to watch as many times as you'd like on any device you'd like. It's a great way to see what you've been hearing, and it certainly helps support the show. So check that out. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram and Sam Jones on Twitter. Social media is a great place to give us guest suggestions or just share a comment or a criticism or a concern. That way you can share it with everybody. And the more you share off camera, the more people find out about it. So take a minute, go on social media and talk about off camera. Also, if you subscribe to my Instagram, you're going to see a lot of behind the scenes pictures of what we do here at the show each week. So check all that out. You'll be glad you did. I want to thank everyone that helps us on this show. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson. These talented folks work really hard on off-camera and just express your gratitude because it's not easy to put out a show every week 
that's a television show, a podcast, and a magazine. Frankly, I don't know how we do it. Uh, And most importantly, be sure to join me next time when I sit down with my old friend and six-year dodger of this show, Zach Galifianakis. One of the things that I, I, that I think that is uh, an interesting social uh, experiment is as a comic, people have already turned off. Um, <laughs> uh, he just said interesting social experiment. <laughs> What's on Bravo? Do we have any corn I can eat out of a can instead of watching this short bearded fat piece of shit? Uh, the social experiment that I've noticed is um, interesting that I have done jokes that have... <laughs> I'm trying to make up a new story in my head to make it more interesting. I mean, how many tumbleweeds have come across since I've been here? Just a sec. Oh. You would think it would be more dynamic. <laughs> Who needs Ambien when you have a comedian talking about his process? You know. <laughs> Let me tell you, boys and girls, persistence pays off. I've been trying to get Zach on this show since episode two. And now, over 200 episodes later, Zach finally agreed to come to my studio. When he got here, the first thing he said was, if I had known you were in Santa Monica, I would have done this years ago. Well, the official occasion for his appearance is his hilarious and awkward Between Two Ferns movie. But we went deep into the woods on the origins of his stand-up comedy, his discomfort about fame and celebrity, and his weird fan interactions. And because it is Zach, we took many non-sequitur detours along the way. But in the end, we determined that Zach is short, he's possibly a bully, he believes in witches, and that the Galifianakis bloodline peaks early. See you next time, off camera.